The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. What spy movie are we going to talk about next? I don't know, man. Uh, I want to do something a bit meatier than the last one. Something uh, more realistic. You know, and maybe something for the ladies, especially after, you know, how sleazebaggy Bond is. You know what would be cool? Let's do Miss Sloan. Ooh, a political espionage thriller. And yeah, I really like that movie. Uh, yeah, I'm totally down for that. What's that? Uh, oh, that's the president's phone, dude. Did you not know that he has a direct line to this podcast? I uh, did not. Okay, give me a second. Uh, yes, hello? Yes, sir. What? You want us to do what? Uh, well, oh, okay, sir. Uh, what did he say? He says we have to do an episode about our man Flint from 1966, like right now. What? Come on, man, do we have to? The president says we do! Shall we begin? Let's begin. The fantastic success of the first James Bond films in the 1960s spawned an immediate and global wave of imitators. By 1966, you could say that the film and TV world had gone kind of spy crazy. But Bond's ultra-iconic style was also super ripe for parody, and parody was not far behind the curve. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies. And we did just talk about Bond, so maybe it's a good time to go straight at one of the most iconic Bond parodies. Plus, the president told us we have to, in this episode of Spies Like Us. So, as we talked about in our in our last episode, uh, James Bond really kicks off uh, the spy craze of the 60s. And uh, now that we're into 1966, the year of our... Of, of this episode's film, which is Our Man Flint. And by 1966, uh, there's a ton, there's just a ton of things going on. Uh, Bond's fourth film has already come out, Thunderball, in 1965. At this point, they're making one a year. Uh, so, uh, as I think we mentioned before, too, they had always planned that as, uh, as a series, like right from the get-go. In fact, the reason they didn't use, uh, what's his name, from North by Northwest? Was it Cary Grant? Maura, can you confirm that for us? The 1959 film North by Northwest stars Cary Grant. It is widely considered a precursor to the modern spy film genre, in style if not in theme. Yeah, it's Cary Grant. Oh. Uh, okay, never mind. Yeah, okay, told you. Um, but yeah, they he was gonna be. They wanted him for Bond, but he wouldn't sign up for five mil- movies. They wanted a five movie uh, deal from the actors, so they they knew it was gonna be a series. And uh, so they're cranking those out. Everybody else is noticing like like how much fun audiences are having uh, with Bond films. And uh, if you if you Google it, I mean, you'll see by 1966, like the shit is just like off the hook, and tons of the. The films and TV series that we think of now as like iconic, iconic early spy stuff. This is all happening just in this little like four-year period. Um, what do we got here? We got serious spy movies, also like like and and by the way, I'm talking about spy movies all around the world. You got them coming out in Japan, in Europe, in Asia, just everywhere. And they range from like various uh, like serious treatments of espionage to fairly direct parodies. Um, some of the serious movies that uh, have come out, like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, right? Super famous movie. That was 1965. Yep. 
So that was just, just a year before, as well as the IC Press file with Michael Caine, also 1965. Um, Hitchcock is uh, doing Torn Curtain in 1966. And even the Flintstones are getting into this action. The Man Called Flintstone, <laughs> 1966, is the Flintstones' first animated movie. They made it right after they had uh, like uh, sunsetted the, the TV series. And uh, it's a Bond parody. And the movie poster of that movie, uh, The Man Called Flintstone, is a direct parody of the poster for the movie we're talking about today, Our Man Flint. Oh, wow. We definitely got to do that one. Uh, it's on the list. It's on the list. But I think I think we're going to try to, like, take a vacation from the 60s after this one. <laughs> <laughs> I could use I could definitely use a vacation from the 60s. And I think you uh, are with me on that. Yeah. Um, television. Television's got it going on as well. Uh, the Man from Uncle. Began its run in 1964. Mission Impossible began its run this year in 1966. The Avengers TV series, which is an interesting one, and that's what I'm really looking forward to getting to someday, because that is a TV show that started in 1961 as a show about crime-fighting doctors. But by this time, uh, you know, getting swept up in the spy craze as well, it had kind of, like, evolved its main character into something much more Bond-like. Uh, and that's where you get that classic Avengers uh, hero guy with the, he's an English gentleman with an intelligence background and his uh, bowler hat can be thrown at people and kill him or whatever. And he's got a sword in his umbrella. Marvel films. What's that? Not to be confused with the Marvel films. Not to be confused with the Marvel films. That's right. <laughs> yes. I, I think do. I did a remake movie adaptation in the 90s with Uma Thurman, but turned out to not be so great. Yeah, I still want to see it, maybe make up my own mind about it. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I, I don't agree with the general uh, consensus of the crowd. But, yeah, um, yeah and uh, I Spy. Okay, so now and then TV comedies are also coming out. I Spy, the show with Bill Cosby, began its run just a year before in 1965, as did Get Smart. Oh, yeah, I missed that Get Smart. It was all about that shoe phone. Yes, it's all about the shoe phone. <laughs> um, so, yeah, those and those are, like, that list I just, you know, that we just gave. Like I said, this is all just stuff that's come out in the last four years uh, in, in, like, this tight little period. And all of those things are things that are, like, should be, like, super high on our list when we look for, uh, you know, classic spy movies. Yeah. Uh, to look for. So it's kind of like the thing where, like, uh, let's see, what what is it? Credence, Clearwater Revival. Um, uh -huh. Like, when you look back, I, I this was on uh, Hit Parade. They did a show about this. Um, you When you look back in history, it's really surprising. Like, every fucking song that you know uh, of Credence, Clearwater Revival, like, he wrote all those in, like, a fucking three-year period. You mean the ones that were used in, like, every Vietnam film ever? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were just, that. that is a band that just, like, burned super-duper-duper-duper duper, duper hot for a short period of time. Uh, so, yeah, into this mix, we have Our Man Flint. Uh, it's a direct Bond parody. It stars James Coburn. James Coburn was uh, pretty, you said you didn't know who he was, um... 
which you know you can be forgiven for that, right? But it's he's he's someone like our dads definitely know. Like yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He was uh, let's see, um, he was uh, you know a tough, cool guy that uh, was one of the Magnificent Seven, and he's in The Great Escape. Oh, that's what I know him from. I thought he looked familiar. Magnificent. Sure, sure, sure. So he's one of those guys that was running around with like uh, Lee Marvin and Steve McQueen and Charles Bronson and, and that that he's that kind of dude. And we've got uh, you know another guy that I know my dad would would know a lot better than me, but Lee J Cobb is the guy that plays his like uh, frustrated ex boss in this movie. Right. And Lee J Cobb is like an actor of note. Uh, from from this period, he's uh, he was uh, uh, he was like the police investigator in The Exorcist, and he was one of the twelve angry men in that film, for instance. Oh, oh right. Not sure how much comedy he ever actually did, but I did think he was pretty funny in this film. He, he was very funny. He definitely played the gags really well. Uh, rounding out the cast, uh, Gil Gila Golan. I don't know anything about her but she does get like third billing in this she plays the 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 bond girl who's uh, actually like the the agent that our sinister uh arc enemy organization sends to like take flint out but of course ends up succumbing oh, to his oh. masculine virtues yeah <laughs> And I want to note one more guy too. Uh, this one, yeah, I love this one. Wait, I gotta find it. Her, her right hand man, not the not the creepy Uncle Fester German guy, but the uptight British guy that like undermines her through the whole movie. Uh huh. You know that guy? Yeah. Uh, that is Edward Mulhair, and he is the guy that was uh, um, what's his name's boss in uh, Knight Rider. Oh, oh, um, I mean that's a pretty solid cast. After I don't know this this film kind of felt like a MSTK three MST three K episode. It's funny you mention that when I when we came to this, that's what I thought it was. I I, I thought that was when I how I had first seen it, um, and I was actually really surprised that Mystery Science Theater did not do. Okay. Yeah, this is definitely a movie they need to do because it definitely is kind of weird and quirky like their typical films are. I mean, it's not as low budget, I guess. And especially not with this cast. This cast is like pretty hefty for the time, it sounds like. Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, yeah, um, that's the movie. That's the that's the time and place it, it occupies in cinematic history. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna go in and tear it apart in the briefing room, yeah? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Voice pattern recognized. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. Alright, so we start out and the weather's fucked up in the UN. <clears throat> I mean, Zowie, but really it's the UN. Uh, springs in action. After some thrilling stock footage and footage of a miniature town being destroyed by a flood and that weird dam shot where it was obviously a miniature... Uh, we visit Zowie, the Zonal Organization of World Intelligence Espionage. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a mouthful. 
I like I like the fact that this movie wastes no time in letting us know what we're in for. Like mm-hmm. just right there, Zowie. Like, they set the tone. They set the tone. They set a tone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, <laughs> we're gonna we're you know everyone's everyone at Zowie. I mean the UN because that's what it really is. Uh, you know, it's like uh, freaking out about. Um, you know these these crazy weather events that are going on like all around the world, like this I and mean, all this stock footage that they're being shown of volcanoes erupting and floods and hurricanes and stuff. Um, and they're getting a report that uh, the the Arctic has warmed by five degrees, <laughs> and that it's and that another five degrees and like and like everything's you know basically like you know all our coasts are wiped out. Everything's underwater. Yeah. Um, I did some maths on this, right? Uh-huh. Uh, five degrees. Now, I'm going to assume it's an American film uh, that uh, that they're talking Fahrenheit. I uh, did a little Googling and found, like, uh, at least one report that, like, said, like, okay, this is from the IPCC's 2013 report. So, you know, it's not the most up-to-date, but I didn't want to waste a whole bunch of time. But there's a prediction that, like, there's a likely to be an increase in mean global op- ocean temperature of 1 to 4 Celsius by 2100. Now, 1 Celsius is 1.8 Fahrenheit. So if you do the quick math on this, uh, like, the 5 degrees that they've suffered is ludicrously high. That, by comparison, if you compare it to that IPCC report from the real world, that's what we're expecting to see by 2100. Oh. Yeah, it is a ridiculous change in temperature. Right. And weirdly, this is not a movie about climate change. Yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, considering uh, really? the timing, some of the images they had, I'm wondering if this was... Well, this might have been around the time they signed the, the government signed the No Weather Weapon Treaty for or whatever. Uh, but, I don't know, watching this film felt kind of Illuminati-ish. To me, there was some creepy moments. So seeing that opening scene was kind of weird, but it, it might have just been happenstance considering the times we're in and seeing it now probably was ridiculous or a little bit more different back then. But now it's like, oh, wow, this is a kind of a real deal. And, and because of how goofy it was, it kind of made it feel propaganda-y a little bit. I don't know, but it, it, it was weird. It was really weird when I was watching it. Well, that's true, and especially especially since, and that's something I'm going to get into later, like, I feel like this movie has kind of an overall kind of an anti-liberal uh, point of view. Well, I know we had talked about this. I, I'm not, I, I think it was more anti-communist, considering the times, you know, uh, but I mean, that would be something, we should definitely maybe talk about that a little bit later, but uh, yeah, no, I remember we had talked about this a little bit. Sure. So, uh, speaking of this, like, uh, massive weather change, um, I'm a little annoyed and disappointed that it's not reflected in the movie whatsoever. Like, if if this was really going on, like, through the movie, as we follow our hero, like, from, like, uh, Marseille to Rome and, you know, kind of around the world doing his thing, like, everywhere he goes, it's just a regular sunny day with everyone just going about their business. And I'm going to give that minus movie points because it's such a huge missed opportunity. I want you to imagine, for instance, like if they made this movie for some reason, like like a modern day movie where the the uh, like a Tom Cruise movie where the temperature had just jacked up five degrees. Like the whole thing 
like there'd just be panic in the streets everywhere and like all these oh, crazy sure. like weather conditions and winds for like Tom Cruise to have to, you know, and, and pouring rain and floods for him to have to deal with. With exorbitant amounts of CGI and innovative, it had an impact on the story. But yeah, they didn't even show any part of the weather being a problem. They just kind of, it just kind of is mentioned. It's it's they're panicked about it, but we don't see anything actually happening in the movie. Yeah. So, eh, whatever. Now the British, so of course, like uh, they all agree, like what they need to do is like uh, come up, like find a guy. A guy to save them. I don't know why that's their go-to. I don't know why they don't like call out the National Guard or whatever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the British, of course, suggest Triple O Eight, which uh, so the movie is also letting us know very early on, and it's going to remind us several times that this is a direct challenge to James Bond. Like yes. not not even it's like a rap song where you like have beef with the other rapper or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> This is, <laughs> I, this, <laughs> whoever the studio uh, that made this, this is their like, this is their like beef movie with with James Bond. Yeah, yeah, we're just gonna go over the top with this, and we're letting you know right off the bat that we're name dropping in no uncertain terms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they the 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 idea is, and Cramden, the guy Lee J. Cobbs that we talked about. He's the American representative of this, of this global body. And he also seems to be kind of like in charge of everything. Cause of course, cause he's American. Cause America, right? Cause America. Um, so he says, okay, everyone, you need to write down what you think like would be the requirements for this job. Everyone write down their own ideas and we'll feed it into the computer. And apparently what everyone wrote down was that we need someone tall and lanky and with a big toothy grin. Because <laughs> that's what they get. The computer says uh, Derek Flint, and everybody's really excited about this idea. That computer was ridiculous. The computer is awesome. It, it was like those like old ones with vacuum tubes that took up an entire college campus, and and cards, was, and everything's done with cards. Punch, punch cards. cards. Yeah. Yeah. Punch cards. Oh my god, it was ridiculous. It like took up the entire government budget at that time, probably. I don't know. I feel like they used like what might have at the time been like the earliest like voting machine. Something. Yeah. But something there's like, like there's conveyor belts and 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 cards being like shuffled and pushed around by jets of air and sorted into little files and it's just it's massive. There's one guy that isn't happy about this idea though, and that's Cramden. Because of course he used to be Derek Flint's boss, and he's dealt with this man before. And what you guys don't understand is this man can't be controlled. He can't be relied on to follow orders. He's a loose cannon, damn it! <laughs> yeah, yeah. In typical old school film, where our main character is that uh, you know uh, rogue type that's gonna like break through all the red tape and solve all the problems, right? And Lee J. Cobbs throughout this movie does a really good turn at the stupid chief stereotype. Oh, absolutely. He was fantastic, yeah. He's not like, he's not so much like crusty and hard-edged, like, damn it, you're gonna listen to me. He's just kind of more like, you know, I don't know, in a more futzy way, like, damn it, Flint, this just isn't gonna work. Yeah, 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 yeah. You've gotta follow the rules. Gotta follow the rules. (laughs) But... Here comes the phone. Little, the president's 
hilarious little red phone is hands down my favorite character in this movie. Absolutely. I want one. <laughs> I'm going to change my ringtone. Yeah. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to strip out the sound effect from the movie and I'm going to turn it into a, my ringtone for my phone. Um, it's a ridiculous uh, big bright red phone and it's got the president's seal you know what it reminded me of was the old batman phone the the adam west batman that giant just that red phone but this Uh one was like big and like on a giant platform and it would just like ring and then he'd pull out this giant phone to answer the phone it was pretty ridiculous for some reason i kept thinking of uh, even though i kept thinking i guess it's the opposite in a way but like of the phone from uh um dr strange love you know, oh, yeah, 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 and all, yeah. all those hilarious one-sided conversations. There's something super, like, stupidly funny and eternally funny about a one-sided conversation where you only get to hear one side. And we never get to hear the president speak, at least on the phone in here. He just, yeah. it, it, but it rings every time Cramden is trying to uh, talk people out of using Derek Flint or saying, well, oh, we tried to get Derek Flint, but we couldn't. The phone just immediately rings, and you can just imagine the president's just on the other side just saying, like, look, man, you've got to get Flint on this job, and you've got to do it now. <laughs> it's like the president is watching Cramden all the time, and every time he, well, like, steps out of line, he rings the phone. We know he's being watched all the time because our villain organization seems to be, like, five steps ahead of them. So it's it's like everybody's being watched at that moment, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it even rings. The best one is like, uh, well, just very soon in the movie, like, uh, uh, Cramden's gonna try to get Flint and get shot down, and he flies back to Washington, and the little red phone is waiting for him on the tarmac yeah. when he lands to ring as he's getting off the phone, and he picks it up, and he's like. Okay, yes, sir. And he just hangs up, turns around, gets right back on the plane. <laughs> I, I love that scene where he's just like, ah. he just runs back up the stairs. Yeah. That was, yeah. That was a great President's Little Red Phone, MVP of this movie. Absolutely. It gets the job done, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so uh, Cramden fails twice to recruit Flint, once by sending a general and then again in person. Um, when he visits him in person, uh, we actually get to meet this Derek Flint that we've been hearing so much about. And, uh, we immediately see that he's not, uh, he, he seems like not a very ordinary person. No, this guy does everything. He's like in the middle of training in every shot we get of him. He's either teaching a class or like a uh, you know, tr- training his fencing or his karate or something. You know, it's he's one of those guys that just constantly is like self improvement. <laughs> yes, yes, massive, massive uh, self improvement kind of guy. Um, I think that in the trailer it says like he he fences for breakfast and does martial arts for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't get to see this in the movie, but also in the trailer he's described as a uh, uh, a brain surgeon a karate champion, and a nuclear physicist. Sounds like, you know, top-notch drafting for a world spy to take on the case of global devastation. Maybe behind the coronavirus. And he, like, teaches ballet in Russia as, like, just a hobby. Mm -hmm. You know, why not? Um, 
He's got uh, he's got his special cigarette lighter with eighty two different functions. Eighty three, if you want to light a cigar. Yeah. <laughs> he's got super cool special gadgets in his watch. He's got a private jet. He's got uh, he's in the some kind of five person like five what what are you, what's the Mormon thing? <laughs> oh, pa, pa, polygamous. Well, yeah, he's in well, a you know, in relationship. Today's, with, in today's speak, it's a polyamorous relationship with these four hotties. Yeah, which we're, I, I definitely have some stuff to say about that later. And they're all not only they're they're not only like uh, uh, beautiful, but they also seem to be very sophisticated and kind of skilled in their own way. And they kind of they kind of uh, perform. Let's see. Like they, they work as like his support team. It looks like. Yeah, we'll call it a support team. Yeah, we'll call it that. <laughs> you could also call it a harem. It's he's got a support harem. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. Support harem, codenamed support harem. He can control his metabolism, and uh, even Doesn't like he we're, control we're... his heart or something. Yes, we're gonna show him sleeping straight as a board between two chairs, right? Doing that trick. Uh, where you know your feet are on one chair and your head's on the other chair, but you're just and he's he's there with uh, his pulse and breathing down to zero, and his heart is stopped for three hours. What what is it? His watch like wakes him up or something with some weird tick to his like wrist or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's commented it's commented that he does that just for relaxation. Yeah. But maybe that's part of his part of his key thing. You know, actually, I remember uh, I was a little disappointed because the way I remembered this film, or maybe I saw the sequel and not this one. But I had remembered. Two of these? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> the the next one is called In Like Flint. Wow! Um, but I had remembered there being more Eastern mysticism in his kit. And and that being my favorite part of him. So maybe there's more of that in the second movie, or maybe it's just the way I remembered it. But I like the fact that he's got these, um, I don't know, these meditative, uh, you know, like kind of like mysticism kind of elements to him. Well, yeah, he's got the whole pet. You know, like we're saying this is a guy of like all of <laughs> He's not a jack of all trades. He's a master of all the tricks. He's multicult. He's very multicultural. Multicultural. He learns everything. The way everything. that Bond is not. That's true. Bond's just pure limey. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, this guy, he's he's into Russian culture. He's into Middle Eastern uh, stuff. He's he's he knows exactly what the ingredients of a certain kind of soup that's served only in a certain district in Marseille is. Yeah. 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 And he. he yeah. We, we, oh, well, we'll get to that scene where he tries every soup in the entire city. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. 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 So uh, he uh, tells Cramden to stuff it and just goes out to dinner with his ladies. He hasn't even been on the case. And this is like the villain group that apparently is watching Zowie the whole time. I mean, the UN um, the whole time and is five steps ahead of them. And yet they seem to believe that Flint is on the case, even though he said no. So they're at this dinner and they tried to kill him. Like, what was it like a heart player? shot a dart yeah gila gila galan who is the section head of uh section four of galaxy galaxy is the uh evil organization 
Um, I'm not sure why. I guess she's a very proactive section head because she definitely is taking matters into her own hands here. Yeah. Um, you know, I would usually you would expect a section head to just send an agent to do the job, but nope, she's right on the front line. She uh, uh, they she switches places with the harp player at the restaurant mm-hmm. and uh, and tries to uh, tries to shoot. Derek with a poison dart using the harp as a little bow uh, and she misses and uh, I want to give some minus five points I think firing the dart with a harp is just kind of silly Yeah. and also it didn't work yeah then it hit some other guy and then we had Flint who's a master of everything came and tried to save his life and they're like he would have died in like four seconds three seconds as Flint corrects the man yeah, that was... sure Wait, 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 I'm just trying to get out of here. The, the tone of this film is set pretty early. Well, it's a good thing she missed, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't even seem like, you know, like Derek Flint didn't, like, I don't know, detect the dart coming or something. It just happened to be, uh, you know, Cramden had accosted him and they're kind of like, I don't know, arguing or something. And, and Derek, like, was they were spinning around just in time for Cramden to take the dart instead of Flint. Yeah, but I mean, like, I, it's, this is still really silly because, like, the, you know, as we'll find out in a little bit, this is what set off Cramden into getting into the job. He didn't want the job. I mean, Flint. Flint, yeah. Flint didn't want to get into the job, and now they're making it personal for him because they're taking shots at him for no reason. They're trying to take him out even before he's on the case. And this is minus five points. Uh, in fact, it's so bad that the fact they tried to kill him is the reason he agrees to take the case. And even worse, the dart is what's later going to give him the clue to find them in Marseille, which is like one way uh, where another attempt on his life is going to give him another clue that helps him find them in Rome. And what they're doing here is they're just making his job totally easy for him. Yeah. They, they literally just helped him find where they were and who they are. And every step of the way, they're just like handing him, giving him like little handouts. Everything. Yeah. Everything that he does to locate their headquarters in, in, in Rome eventually uh, is something that if they had just done nothing, then he would have had nothing to go on. Yeah. Now, of course, maybe we're meant to think it would have been super easy for him to figure it out no matter what. But, yeah. uh, but I'm going to give it, my number three worst tradecraft of the movie, which was uh, villains just being a little too trigger happy. Well, no, not a little, a lot too trigger happy here. Yeah. And just kind of undercutting themselves. So Flint finally takes the job and uh, he's sitting there with, with Camden. Cramden. Cramden. So he finally takes the job and he's, in the office with Cramden and Cramden is uh, offering him this briefcase, which is definitely a callback to uh, from Russia with love. Cause you know, there's the knife that pops out of the briefcase and there's all kinds of stuff in the briefcase, uh, which of course, our man Flint completely declines. Cause he has this lighter with 82 plus functions and 83. If you want to light a cigar. So on top of the lighter, it's got all these weird functions and he does everything his own way. He, he uses his own codes, his own jets, so he like refuses everything, including uh, a team that is offered to him from uh, from Cramden. Uh, and I'm going to say this is my number one worst tradecraft. 
I mean, like, yeah, for the I guess cinematic reasons of the film, this guy is supposed to be, you know, this is a parody of Bond and Bond's the self-sufficient, like, uh, lone wolf type or whatever. But, but um, not having a team, especially uh, for a problem of this scale, I, I think it's probably one of the biggest mistakes that Flint made. Uh, even though he doesn't really, even though everything he does is over the top, he doesn't make too many mistakes. But I think it's a bad idea for him not taking a team. He doesn't even know what he's up against at this point. Yeah, he, he's just like, all right, yeah, fine, I'll take the job because they made it personal, and I'm gonna go as a lone wolf and do everything my way. Um, but I, I, you know, everything's fine, whatever. But you know, just the fact that he turned down a team. I mean, it was a team under his command too that he could have just told what to do. Uh, I don't, I don't know the reason behind any of it. Oh, um, we're gonna we're gonna keep making jabs at Bond like throughout the film. Uh, later, we're gonna see Gila reading the Adventures of Triple O Eight and dismissing it as uh, unbelievable nonsense, which is rich coming from this film. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Um. He uh he they're still in the office. He analyzes the uh oh they get the lab results back of like of the dart that that was shot. At, at Flint in the restaurant that yeah. actually got crammed in. And uh, there's some traces of, like, I don't know, fennel and garlic or something in a per- certain combination that uh, leads are super, like... And this is something, like, even Sherlock Holmes is... This is even too much for, like, Sherlock Holmes. He immediately knows that, like, this, these ingredients are only used in a certain kind of soup that's only served in a certain little district in Marseille. Yeah. And I'm not even give, I'm not even giving that spy points because that's just that's now you're just now you just have fucking superpowers. Yeah, <laughs> you don't give spy points for superpowers. Yeah. Um. Oh, and it, this this is like right around when he like beats up the guards after Cranbin's yelling at him. They're gonna like tell him to they're they're gonna like arrest him for assault, but somehow he recognizes him. He, you know, Cranbin's like these guys have been working for us forever. He's like no. Uh, you know, these guys are part of the enemy. He beats them up, and then they find the real guards that are dead in the other room. And apparently, they were able to do plastic surgery that quickly to make them look exactly like them. And and they just randomly beat... I mean, just this whole shot. He just randomly attacks the two guards in the office. Well, it seems random to us, but yeah. But then he explains. And, and he says, you see this? This is the medal for the... Ribbon for the Battle of the Bulge. And... Crimson's like, well, there is no ribbon for the Battle of the Bulge, so plus, I'll give plus spy points for that. That's yeah. that's that's some good sleuth work right there. Um, so now that he's got the soup information, he travels to Marseille, and uh, Gila and her goon are there. It's not clear why, uh, except maybe that just that her goon just happens to like hanging out in that restaurant because he likes that soup. Um, and they've yeah, got he, he's actually eating the soup, which is how we know the trace was probably on the dart because he just eats the soup all the time, sure, sure, sure. Um, but they're there, they're there, and they've got a bomb ready in a case of cold cream, and there's no explanation of why they have that because they shouldn't be. I mean, later they're gonna try to use she's gonna try to use it to blow Flint up, but. At this point, she shouldn't have any reason to suspect that Flint is going to arrive in that cafe on that night. So, minus five points for the film. Yeah, that that was uh, that was kind of silly. Um, what what I loved in this in this 
acting though at the bar because Flint fine. Oh yeah, this is we didn't get to talk about the soup before we even get to the bar scene with our villains. Oh right, Flint the Marseille and goes to like every like restaurant possible and eats the soup. Takes one sip or like one sip or one spoonful, shakes his head and then walks out. Like <laughs> it, it's like a montage of him just trying soup for like five minutes. Uh, and and he and he uh, gets to this I don't know bar club lounge thing with his like performances and stuff, and that's where he found our villains. And he's as he's at the the bar, uh, Triple Eight, who we've been introduced to uh, only through I guess dialogue, is actually at this bar, and I guess there to meet Flint, and just starts a fight with Flint. So they're having this like crazy fist fight, and you're like, wait, it just comes out of nowhere. But then Triple Eight starts giving Flint all this information, and I was like, "Oh, this is kind of like their way of like passing information without looking, making it look obvious that they know each other. They're just like pissed off at each other at the way they talk." Well, that's right. Triple Eight was like kind of being slimy with the the dancer girls. Uh Flint shows up like the the Sir Lancelot to go stop him. Right. He 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 knocks Flint over, you know, into a like a slightly separate section of the of the restaurant and as they're wrestling he's like i wanted to have a word with you yeah and they, they have like a whole like passing of intelligence together and and so this is like my number two best trade craft and my number three. Oh yeah that's number three yeah definitely plus my points on this as ridiculous as it is i i, I thought it was kind of clever because out in the public it's just two dudes fighting and they're just passing off information so there'd be really no reason to suspect that they're like they know each other right and even as derek is tossing him out of the out of the restaurant he says see you later triple oh eight and triple oh eight's like see you later flint yeah <laughs> it, it was pretty ridiculous but you know i i thought, I thought that was kind of clever so yeah definitely some plus five points from both todd and i next up uh the goon uh gila's goon follows flint into the bathroom where he attacks him and and i thought it was kind of a cool fight for the time um but uh flint flint kills the goon and then he spends a bunch of time disguising himself as he leaves the bathroom and i don't like this part um i mean it's sort of clever i mean it's definitely he's uh being uh whatchamacallit creative um what's the word for uh, resourceful yeah, he's being very res- yeah resourceful in he's using the auto towel in the bathroom to to uh, pretend that he's got a turban and he's got a reversible jacket uh, so that he comes out and he puts on some sunglasses so he does come out looking entirely different than when he went in but it's a small bathroom and he spent a lot of time in there and who really if anyone was watching the bathroom who is going to be fooled by this nobody I don't because. When when uh, Gila and her goon arm the bomb, oh no, that's right. He kills the goon inside, and then Gila arms the bomb at the table. Bomb at the table, I guess, to blow up Flint. And when Flint gets back, he notices the 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 cream, and he just starts pulling out like a gadget to test it. I think it's the lighter actually, and uh, determines it's a bomb. Pulls out a gun and starts scaring up the crowd. You know, like uh, like he's gonna shoot up the place. So the now, really, piece... really quick in the previous scene, didn't he eschew the notion of carrying a gun? Oh, that's right. No, he's got the goons gun at this point. Yeah, because yeah, he he disarmed him in the bathroom. Um, 
which I, the, the moves were pretty cool. They were pretty cinematic moves, but, you know, kind of a good situation to get out of. I don't know. But, yeah, you know, he runs out and starts waving his gun around to scare out the crowd because he realizes there's a bomb in the place. So I guess to save everybody's life, he pretends like he's going to shoot up the place just so he can get the bomb out of the way and protect everybody. So I put this down as my number three best trade craft, that coming back from the restroom, he notices, like, an item on his on a table and is suspicious because he knew Gila, Gila and the goon were sitting there. And then he kind of... Did he, he though? Did he, though? The movie never showed any indication that he had noticed them at the table. Yeah, but it's our man Flint. He notices everything. Right? They, she has no reason to think that he would come and sit at her table after she left. No, I know, but he yeah. would have noticed the goon sitting there, right? Uh, just given minus five points for, for her for this whole bomb plan. Oh, Which is, it doesn't even seem what because there is no plan because it just it just it just doesn't like uh, it doesn't hold up. It's it's tissue tissue thin. Like there's no reason for them to have brought a bomb to this location. There's no reason for her to suspect that Flint would come looking at a case of cold cream sitting at her table. Other than they know it's Flint on the job at this point, and he. He's like a master of everything, so they probably would have presumed that he would have picked up on the soup or something, unless they planted the trace of soup there to get him there. I, I, I don't know. I think, well, that's I think an interesting just... thing. And well, since you bring that up, let's let's tackle that right now. You could put this alternate theory in place where they were so clever that they knew that he would figure out the soup thing, right? To get to Marseille. And in a second, he's going to use uh, evidence from the bomb to figure out that the bomb came from Rome, which is his next step, which, again, they're just leading, leaving these totally unnecessary breadcrumbs along the way. But even given all that, like, even if you do have that theory of the case, they never show any indication of being that clever or of being that aware of Flint's capabilities. So if well, that's what if that's what the movie was trying to do, it failed. Minus five points. Well, I mean, my thought is that it's a being a parody. It, it, it's just assumed, which you know, in a lot of the Bond films, things just happen like that, and it's just assumed. Like how, why, you know, how are we supposed to figure this out or whatever? It's just assumed that all of this is in play and without any indication whatsoever. There's only know. so much though that I'm gonna let a movie off the hook. For, oh, for having shit that doesn't make sense. I agree. I agree. I'm, I'm definitely not trying to defend the film. I'm just trying to, I'm reaching for something, to, you know, because there's a lot that's pretty over the top here. Right. Like, there's a big difference, in my opinion, between unrealistic spy stuff and right. spy stuff that you just put on the page without even thinking about how it would work. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. But, I, I mean, I, I did like how he scared everybody off to, to kind of deal with the bomb and, like, that he went back and noticed something that wasn't there and then, like, checked on it and, yeah, and quick reaction. So I put that as my number three best. For instance, I will give plus five points for his, him using his little microscope watch to analyze, oh, okay. to analyze the bomb fragments. Uh, I'll give plus five points, especially if you like gadgets, for contacting Cramden at HQ with his radio-equipped lighter. Remember, it's got 82 functions. Uh, in fact, and he uses I, what? Morse code? Does he talk to them? Oh, he talks to them in numbers. 
in That's numbers, right. right, which are all based on a mathematical progression of like 42, 36, 42, 26, 36, which he twice in the movie tries to explain what it's based on. And both times the other person says, no, I can, I, I can guess what it's based on. Yeah. <laughs> it's supposed to be measurements of a lady. <laughs> oh. Uh, uh, no, they're, they're definitely a cool, cool gadget. I do, I do overall, I do like the gold lighter. We're going to see it do a lot of other th cool things. We're going to see him use it as a blowtorch to escape from inside a safe. We're going to see him use it as a smoke bomb. And, um, yeah, it's cool. As a concept, the gold lighter is neat. Yeah. It's kind of like Batman's utility belt, but in classy gold lighter form. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so then what we get to Gila's guy. Sure. Well, he's going to head to Rome based on having figured out that, uh, let's see the, either the ingredients of the cold cream or elements of the bomb, either way, it's some kind of metal, but I think there is some kind of metal used in cold cream. Um, but it comes from a certain mine, uh, in Tuscany or something. And, yeah. uh, so he heads to Rome to continue to pursue the villains. And uh, we get treated to a scene aboard Gila's sub. That's one of the cool things we hadn't mentioned yet, but she's got a submarine that she cruises around in. And, uh, oh yeah, here. So here they, uh, she gets to talk with uh, her bosses, the arch villains of the movie. I think this is the first time we see them. Yeah. It's three what doctors in white coats. We're going to like get... three scientists or something. Yeah. It looks like three scientists. We're going to get back to them when we meet them on the Island. But, uh, here she, uh, you know, is basically like confidently reporting that Flint is dead. And I have to give her huge minus spy points for this because why, first of all, like I said before, why would she think that it would have killed Flint? It was a pretty localized explosion. It's not like it destroyed the whole cafe. It looked like it would, would have just maybe seriously injured people sitting at the table that it was at. Yeah. Um, so, first of all, she doesn't have any reason to think it would have killed Flint. Second, any, any halfway decent spy that had just left the club with a bomb in it would have monitored the club. They would have seen everyone running out screaming. They would have known that there are multiple exits out of the club, which we did see. So even if she didn't see him coming out one door, there's no reason for her to assume he couldn't have easily left out another door. Remember, she sees a bunch of people leaving the club. All of the people leaving the club. So there's no reason for her to be so confident that uh, it would have killed him. Minus five points. In fact, I think I put that as my number two worst. Yeah. I'm going to give her some more minus five points, too, because apparently her uh, right-hand man, Rodney, who I think we've seen before, but this is where we first see him getting some speaking lines, Edward Mulhair, who I did recognize, I, I was surprised, actually, I mean, I wasn't surprised when I looked him up that he was someone that whose face I knew, because he turns out to be the guy that's the boss of, um, what's the dude's name in Knight Rider? Michael. Hasselhoff. 
Oh, Hasselhoff. Yeah, oh, right. Yeah. yeah, the character's name is Michael. But yeah, David Hasselhoff's right, boss in Knight Rider yeah. seems to be what he's most famous for. He seems he's kind of like seems like a poor man's Chris Plummer. Uh, is is how I read this guy. It's like, uh, oh, we couldn't get Christopher Plummer. Well, let's get Edward Mulhair. Um, now, apparently, she he reported the fact that Flint survived to the three scientists without telling her, which is a dick move. Yeah, he's been he he's gunning for her job. He wants to take over this project. And a, evil evil spy alarm should be going off in her head because he's clearly undercutting her right in front of her face. He even volunteers to take over the mission yeah. right in front of her, and the failure of her to do anything about that. And to be surprised, you know, like maybe when he like, you know, undercuts her later in the film, uh, should earn her some more minus spy points. Yeah. In fact, I don't think she gets any positive spy points in this film. I think she's a pretty bad villain. She doesn't really actually do much. Adding to like the kind of uh I don't know, demeaning of women in this movie and the Bond films. I, I don't really think there's any women that do anything in this movie. Well, I do like the fact that she's, um, you know, the head of a section. Yeah. I, I do like the fact that she's in, like, that she's in charge of killing yeah. Flint as far as, like, uh, you know, uh, go woman power kind of thing. But the fact that she's so miserable about it definitely uh, more than... Uh, compensates. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is when she gets the note where she finds out his weakness. Uh-huh. His four weaknesses, which is the harem support team. Which is, by the way, passed to her on a handwritten note. I don't know why I key in on stupid things like this. I just like doing that. It's a fucking handwritten note. Somebody get a typewriter for the submarine. Yeah. Um, well, they end up kidnapping the girls, right? Yeah, sure. So that's kind of clever, right? Yeah, we get like a montage of the girls being kidnapped. Yeah, I guess I guess it's kind of sp- plus by points. They found out a a weakness of his, and now they are, I guess, leveraging it. Um, and and so the girls are off on their day, like getting their hair done or uh, trying on clothes, and they get abducted. Yeah, and it is a montage. And I did like the first one the most, where she's uh, she's looking, she's trying on closing a mirror, and the and the person behind her just like pushes her through the mirror, which turns yeah. out to be like kind of a trapdoor mirror kind of thing. Yeah, which was clever, but it's awfully awfully specific and localized abduction device, and also unnecessary because she's in a private hotel room. You could have just snapped her. Like, there's no reason to do that. But uh, yeah, so. We'll come out. Uh, we'll come out even, Stephen, on the spy points on that one. Yeah. So Flint travels to Rome, and we also see that Cramden uh, is following uh, Flint to Rome because he did get the the secret signal messages that uh, Flint sent from the cafe using his super secret spy gold lighter radio watch or lighter, lighter, lighter. Uh, now at this point the villains this is like a i guess the i don't know the third time flint's encountered the villains this time they actually seem to be ready for him again and we just talked about it like maybe there's this super theory where they had like actually meant to leave all these breadcrumbs but uh, again they didn't show any sign of being that clever 
but uh, in this case, they actually are like uh, waiting for him. Um, and Gila's plan here is to have sex with Flint. <laughs> great, In great, fashion. great plan. I don't know. Yeah. Skip to the end much? It, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't even have to seduce her. She's just like, let's go. She tells yeah. him about the weather control base in the volcano. Uh, her plan, which does work, okay, let's give it credit for, for working, is like what she wants is for him to steal her office key after they have sex. Uh, but let's be honest, he would not need that key. A man like Flint can fucking pick a lock, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, especially with that blowtorch we see later. But right, whatever. yeah. But, uh, you know. Oh, look, uh, her, mouth, I guess. her little ploy does work. He steals the key. He goes to her office at night cracks the safe, and he goes inside so that her guys can trap him inside the safe. I'm going to give Galaxy some props, and, you know, I I just said earlier I didn't think she got any plus five points in this movie. No, she does get plus five points here, because at this point, we do know just how capable and survivable he is, so trapping him inside a safe with no ventilation seems like a very sensible and safe way to try to kill him. And then we also see that the safe is detachable as a trailer from the outside, so they can just, uh, you know, cart him around. And uh, plus five points for that. Number two best. Yeah, and uh, but I, I definitely want to talk about this building. So the the beauty supply front building or whatever. It's it's like one of those, uh, you know, like in in the Bond films. There's always like some giant mansion with like tons of moving parts and like very industrial sized kind of, you know. This whole building sinks like on an elevator to be hidden and just disappears. Um, uh, and I, and I, I think Todd, what I want to, you wanted to give what, some plus five points on this. Well, yeah, I like I like the the fact that you know it's just it's just ingenious like evil villain kind of stuff. And then there's a a whole uh, show of a like a bunch of people rush out with and set tables out, and a bunch of people are pretending to be customers, and some people are pretending to be waiters, and it just looks like a cafe. A cafe, yeah. They just kind of hid this entire building and set up like this fake scenery with what, like 20 something people, 30, 40 people or something like that with this fake cafe, the building sinks and no longer exists. Yeah. Boom. Gone in a minute. And and, and I mean, like, I, I know how over the top this film is. And so I, I, I guess like, okay, it's kind of cute, but like just thinking about it, I mean, I, unless they're trying to, unless they have this building, for like some doomsday plan where they need to sink underground and get away or whatever. But it seems to me that they've actually planned this whole thing out several times to pretend this building doesn't exist. And people live in the area. There's other buildings. It's, 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 it's not like an area that's secluded in the middle of nowhere and it just disappears. It's like a building in the middle of like a, a busy city where like, there's like apartments all over the place. There's little businesses all over the place. Like for them to like, actually make it go up and down on like not even considering the build like the the construction of like such a concept you're talking like crazy amounts of money and for what like how many times are they going to use this like like i guess you could argue it's it's for some situation where they might have to like hide from like some crazy doomsday situation or whatever because that's why you would build a building like that but it seems like they built the building literally to make it hide like, no one in the neighborhood would know. So, I'm going to put this as my number three worst tradecraft. 
Um, right. Like how how long how long would that construction have had to have gone on? Yeah, <laughs> it would have taken forever to make it, and, and the amount of time—I mean, from the amount, the way that they looked, that they've practiced the situation out where the building sinks and then they make up a cafe. Like it—it it, it seems like this is something that they do often to like pretend yeah. this building's not there. As an audience, we know that Cramden is just about to show up looking for Flint, but the villains don't have any reason to think that. No, they don't. They, they're just like, all right, let's just make this building go down. And so I, I thought it was like not the best use of resources. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm not sure what the purpose. So I'm putting that as my number three. But uh, as soon as Cramden shows up with, with some military official and a bunch of other guys and uh, they go up to the cafe and they start talking to people at the cafe about this building that's missing. They act like he's crazy. And and they go back and then uh, what was it the military official he was just like or was it Cramden he was like great intelligence work screaming as loudly as possible in the public I'm gonna put this as my number two worst tradecraft where like why are you screaming out like great intelligence you know and then saying your next job is gonna be over here like like you're literally just like showing your hand way too loudly for no reason. And I'm going to jump in right on after you with my number one worst tradecraft for this film, which is, okay, so again, we just talked about the implausibility of, you know, the the over-preparedness and the implausibility of setting this whole, like, disappearing building trick up. Yeah. It's also really stupid because even afterwards, our side should easily be able to find out if that cafe had indeed been there for years as the man says as the galaxy agent who's like pretending to be the mater d or whatever of the cafe uh tells them like any kid who lived in the neighborhood could confirm or deny that this is not a complicated intelligence gathering mission you just grab some random fucking newspaper boy off the street <laughs> and say like hey kid how long's that cafe been there yeah <laughs> Do you remember another building being over here? You know, like, yeah. That's definitely a good point. Now, I'm going to, uh, I want to flag this little tiny thing here next. Uh, I hope not to spend too much time on it, but I liked what I found. You know, like, I like to, uh, uh, so, again, we got Cramden. He's frustrated. He's annoyed. Like you said, he's yelling about this, uh, the stupid intelligence of the people around him. And as he's driving away in the car, he yells to the guy, he says, you know, he says, great intelligence. Your next post will be Peyton Place. Yeah. <laughs> and so me being me and this podcast being this podcast, I was curious, what is Peyton Place? Uh, you know, we, we, we have seen in lots of movies over the years, we have like these, all these jokes about like when you fuck up at your job in the military or intelligence, like they, uh, you know, your next post is in Nome, Alaska or something, yeah. right? Alaska is a, is a, seems to be our go-to joke on that one. Yeah. Or Siberia, you know, if you're a Russian that fucks up and I guess, uh, where do they send you if they, if you fuck up in, in MI6? Um, uh, I don't know, probably Greenland. Somewhere. <laughs> somewhere, yeah, 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 yeah. Or they just send you to like Middlesex or something. Uh, or so, yeah, no. So I did look it up. I was like, what's Peyton Place? And it was kind of interesting because Peyton Place is not just a small American town, it's a fictional one, it doesn't exist. 
But in 1966, there had been, which is the time that this movie had come out, recently there had been two movies and a television series had just started up, which were based on a, a, a novel called Peyton Place. And the story just seems to be about bored housewives having affairs and scandalous soap opera stuff like that. Kind of like a Stepford Wives type of situation. Uh, I'm not even sure it's like that. It's just, uh, it's just a small town where, like, I don't know, like the just ladies are sleeping with people they shouldn't be sleeping with. <laughs> <laughs> So at first, I mean, I scratched my head on that a little, but then I realized, like, oh, I get it. So the implication here is that this guy's fit for nothing better than investigating who's sleeping with who, you know, like like that kind of, uh, you know, how like uh, when you when you have a film noir where you have like uh, a detective that the police want to say, like, uh, you know, like you're. Like, take the example of, for instance, like, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, right? Yeah. Uh, Bob Hoskins' character, he's a drunk, uh, he's a drunk, like, washed-up detective who's just, uh, his jobs are, like, taking photos to prove that someone's having an affair or something. And, like, you always have these scenes where the police are, like, really dismissive of that kind of work. Like, that's the lowest of the low kind of fucking scummy-ass, just dirtbag fucking fishing for nickels kind of investigation. Right, exactly. So, in this case, this joke would have landed with audiences because they would have all been very familiar with Peyton Place. It was it was very popular, like I said, like movie series, TV series at the time. And the implication is is just that that like you are such a shitty intelligence operative that you should be fucking doing Bob Hoskins' job in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's all you're good for. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so we, I mean, this whole thing, Flint gets the island location from inside the safe. And, he uh, does. He, the very clearly marked in somebody, somebody, somebody wrote Galaxy Island in a big red marker. And just in case you missed that, there's like fucking four big, huge arrows written in red marker pointing toward it. Kind of like in Looney Tunes where they have that light like bad guys hide out. <laughs> Yes, very much so. Yeah. And then, uh, well, this is where we get to see the lighter torch, right? He gets through the safe because, you know, he's about to get suffocated. And he uses the, the, the lighter that has this giant, like, blowtorch all of a sudden, uh, which I guess you could also light a cigar with. Um, he, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> he uses the torch to, like, crack open the safe, notices that he's being uh, he's on a trailer, so he's probably going to be able to use his opportunity to get to where he needs to get to and uh, slows down his heart to pretend that he got suffocated by the safe. Because he, um, okay, be, like, ordinarily he's, like, ready to make his escape. But he uses, again, I think it's from his later, I forget, or something, but he shoots a little, like, uh, um, listening device on a wire. Oh, yeah. To, and, to the oh, back window of the car that's pulling the, the trailer. Yeah, and so he can listen in on that. And that's when he... Support team got kidnapped or something. Yeah, say that again. That's when he learns what? That's when, his harem, that's when he learns his harem support team got kidnapped. Right, because he was just about to uh, radio to send the fleet to destroy the island. 
but then he hears that uh, his girls have been taken to the island, and so he uh, aborts giving the location, and uh, and then yeah, does the metabolism trick that we talked about before uh, to fake his death by suffocation, which is what the villains are expecting, right? That's what the villains are hoping for. That's what the villains expect, given what they expect. Right, since they're they're just as clever as Flint apparently, and have set up this whole situation, but. Uh, this is both, wait, our, our best tradecraft was the stopping a heartbeat. Absolutely. I mean, it's a little cheaty because it does stray into the realm of superpower, but it's also just fucking cool. And it's like the coolest thing he does in this movie. Well, I'm, I'm going to say that, uh, I don't, I don't know how, how, uh, unrealistic it is. I've, I've heard that people can do that and have done that in the past i don't know how successful now with the instruments we have but from what i understand people do know how to stop their heartbeats sure 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 but you know again it's always it's tough with rating these like tradecraft things like when we're doing such different kinds of spy movies like you know in the company this would have not no you know this is not a most what in a most wanted man our our expectations are quite a bit higher yeah, we expect some solid tradecraft in those films, versus like we do these where everything's so outlandish and perfect. It's yeah, you, know, no. you just—I mean, you just find what you can and, yeah. and go with it. Um, so he's doing that. Um, a picture of him dead is sent to Zowie or the UN. UN. Uh, where we also note that the Arctic is continuing to collapse, even though, again, like we're, we're not seeing any indication. It's still a sunny, fucking bright day on the Paramount sets or wherever they film this garbage uh, yeah. in, in all the scenes. Uh, the evil scientists at this point announce themselves to the world via TV broadcasts. It's one of those classic scenes where they have, you know, like you turn all the channels and, oh, my God, it's the same thing on every channel. How did yeah. they do that? Yeah, <laughs> they just broadcast it everywhere. And the scientists are saying, hey, everybody, chill out. We are your friends. We are your friends. We're going we're gonna to make everything better. And just to demonstrate like how powerful we are and that you should take us seriously, we're going to like blow up some volcanoes. Yeah, it's just kind of well, counterproductive. They didn't, they, they, didn't, they didn't. Yeah, but they didn't do it on a serious event. They did like a small earthquake, right? And the no, earth, there's the, two. It's the no, volcanic no. damage wasn't that big of a deal, right? Um, yeah, I don't know if they clarified that, but no, it's two specific volcanoes which have been long dormant, and they're gonna uh, have both of them go active again at an exact time, and that's and supposed exact, to demonstrate that they have. Scale. They Go even ahead. called out the seismic scale, like it was like a 3.6 or something like that, and the seismologists come back with the exact measurement that they claim that they were going to create or something. And their evil demands of the world are for all the world powers to destroy all their nuclear weapons, all of their military aircraft and navies, in order to create a more peaceful and productive world. And I think this is where we were talking about the technocracy, and you were saying it's anti-liberal. I'm gonna need a I'm gonna need another beer before we get into that. But I'll start out by saying, as far as evil plots go, this is one I feel like I can kind of get behind. 
What's wrong with getting rid of all... What's wrong with someone taking the world hostage and saying, dude, lose the nukes? We'll, we'll talk about it later after you appear. Alright. All right. Mara, play some, play some music. Play that phone ring. The phone ring. So yeah, next up, uh, Flint in his uh, induced comatose state or whatever, his, his uh, pretend death uh, arrives on the island. Uh, Gila delivers the coffin. He wakes up when he gets a chance and, and without being seen, he grabs a henchman disguise. And he finds on the island a utopia-esque society with advanced technology. That has, like, a really commune feel to it. Like, you, you think we're going to get into, like, some evil villain base, but there's, like, a ton of people just waltzing around, like, in a, like, a, like a tropic paradise. Like, tropic and, paradise, people are wearing not much clothes. It's colorful yeah, clothes. Very hippie commune feel Probably to it. Probably a lot of free love going on yeah. around here, we get the idea. But we also see, like, some, some cool, like, uh, um... What do you call it? What's the what's the thing at Disneyland? The the tram, whatever oh, the thing. Monorail? Yeah, yeah, the monorail. Like, we see like yeah. a, a kind of a science fiction version of that going through the air. And by the way, I really like you know for the for the special effects budget that they used on this film, which was not a lot. I feel like they put a lot into this scene, and that <laughs> it was it was. I think it was very effective. I think in just like one or two really good establishing shots that really conveyed like the sense of this island as a utopian paradise. Definitely. Gila gets embarrassed in front of her her uh, scientist evil masters, evil masterminds, when the coffin that she delivers does not contain Flint. Meanwhile, while Flint is like uh, reconnoitering the island, he gets discovered... And some goons escort him to, to the bosses. And he sees all the mad scientist stuff that they have along the way. Like all these just weird, like, Star Trek-y kind of, like, spinning wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah kind of engines and things. And this is probably, like, all the machinery that they use to control the weather. Yeah. Well, it's an entire, like, facility type thing that he's, like, running into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we meet the, we meet the three scientists. Now we get to talk about them. They are... Krupov, Wu, and Schneider. In other words, we got a Russian, a Chinese, and a Jew or German works either way. Wait, but wasn't it the Jew or German that had the last name Wu and the Chinese guy that had the last name Schneider? It is really weird. I kept thinking it was a fucking typo in the IMDb cast notes. But yeah, the Chinese guy is named Schneider and the German guy is named Wu. Yeah. Uh, for no apparent reason except just to confuse my... Well, I think it was a comedy bit. I think they were trying to make a little bit about it. But, I mean, good on them for not, like, pulling the stereotype. But, yeah, I, th- I think I think it was just a quick joke that probably didn't land as well. Or maybe it landed well then. I don't know. But, yeah. It, it was... Sure, but, e- but either way, the, the three names are, are definitely, well... They're definitely like, I don't know, they, they have very 
uh, communist and New World Order implications. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think they're meant to be cartoons, like in that in that sense. Yeah. And, you know, Ronnie, at this point, what Ronnie throws Gila under the bus. Yeah, but we want to we wanted to talk about the science. Uh, oh, is it now? Now, now, right? now we're talk about the science. Oh, okay, we're doing this now. See, the thing is, my my argument of the anti-liberal, and yeah, you could say anti-communist, but I, I'm going to go with anti-liberal uh, bent to this movie is uh, there's a deep suspicion of the UN, right? Um, yeah, they make them look like comical and incapable. And that we need this uh, uh, desperado to come and shake things up. So yeah, okay, I'm with you. Um, there's a there's a reliance on computers and data to make decisions. Uh, there's an attempt to do away with uh, nukes and and uh, and military, which is very hippy dippy lefty stuff for the '60s. Not right. so much, not so much these days. You don't see a lot of Democrats running around saying we no. get a get rid of all the nukes. <laughs> they, they, they talk like they're gonna start wars, and then they just bomb people. But yeah, yeah. Um, we've got we've got the. Uh, the, this cartoonish vision of a technocracy where these three guys really seem sincere in their desire to bring about a better, more productive, more peaceful, and egalitarian world uh, through the application of, of science and, and uh, you know, that uh, technocratic elite kind of thing where, like, the, the smartest people amongst us will make decisions that uh, that that will, you know, uh, protect people from their base urges. And, you so know, that, like, that's my pitch, and I think well, I think Flint I think Flint is our our classic American uh, uh, cowboy kind of kind of yeah. super uh, independent conservative guy. That uh, you know, even like later when when they say when they propose to him like. But Mr. Flint, like, we're offering you like a better world. And he's like, Yeah, but who decides what's a better world or whatever? Like, right. you know, I didn't I didn't elect you. Yeah. Right. Uh, and and you know, like you you definitely have a because I didn't even realize what a technocracy was. Cause I remember we were watching this together and you had pointed out anti liberal and I I was like, What? And then and then uh when you had explained a technocracy to me because apparently that's like big in sci-fi and i know you read a lot of sci-fi um uh i i definitely agree with you that that technocracy exists in the villains uh my thing is i don't know how much of the audience would have understood that and i'm looking at the time period this, this is put out in the 60s and when we get to the evil uh you know galaxy you know uh facility we have a commune you know what I mean? And at that point, we, we have the hippie movement going on, which was heavily backed by, you know, Russian communists. And um, and their whole standpoint was very, like there was a lot of communist literature going out. So I, I think this was more anti-communist, but the technocratic concept that you are saying definitely exists there. I don't know if that was big prevalent at the time. I mean, this is way before my time, so I don't know. But I when I'm watching this film, my whole thing is like, 
oh, this is anti-communist, considering the timing. Because this is this is probably when J. Edgar Hoover was like on a witch hunt for communists, you know, uh, and and like everything hippie represented communist, um, you know, and uh, so when when you say it's like anti-liberal. You know, I, I'm watching this film and I'm like, no, they're going for the extreme left, which would, you know, the farthest left you can go is probably communist, right? You know, versus like just saying, oh, liberals are wrong. I think they're more saying communism's wrong and it's all about being a free agent to make your own decisions and be a part of that process, especially when the United States was actively trying to spread democracy or uh, quote-unquote democracy because we don't have one and we never have but the, the concept of participating in government and participating in your country uh which the opposite side of the spectrum would be no your government makes all the decisions which is 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 kind of a liberal concept but liberal like if you when i call someone when, when you talk to someone and they say they're a liberal they're not thinking they're a communist they, they think that they believe in some amount of freedoms and individuality they're not they're not looking at a totalitarianism like this film is like portraying where these uh three scientists are using force to basically convince the world that their vision for the world is the better vision and will bring peace to everyone uh but you know which which as far as i'm concerned is the 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 big hypocrisy behind the idea of a totalitarian government or which or i guess a communism because communism isn't the only totalitarian governments out there but you know the idea where the state makes all the decisions but the state's made up of a group of people and and you know it's kind of like who who are you to say that these are the three smartest people in the world and what they're doing is using violent and terrorist you know activities to tell people to not be violent or terrorists and 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 you know to what degree are they going to make decisions for people's livelihoods i mean it's pretty obvious they're looking for a totalitarian government there's also there's also the huge flaw unless they have the the technology to reverse the damage that they're inflicting upon the earth <laughs> i know, you know right they've, you know they've... they dropped the polar ice caps which is now like a horrific like fear of like a lot of people today yeah, you're you're gonna drop like one of the most precious areas of the earth, like as scientists, to 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 bully people into believing you're bringing us a better world. Like, you know, get out of here. Yeah, like, but yeah, I I, I definitely see your point of the technocracy, which I didn't understand was until we had our discussion. But um, I'm like, I'm I'm not sure that it's uh an anti-liberal sentiment so much as an anti-communist sentiment and an anti-like hippie sentiment, you know, because. You know the 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 utopian commune they created is very 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 resemblant of of like the communes of the sixties, you know, like it, the where it's just like here we're all here to like do whatever we want as long as these scientists like protect us, you know, <laughs> like 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 that's that, that's what really bothered me is they used the carnal. Uh, lure and temptation to convince people. Not only did they use force, fear, and terrorism to scare people into doing what they wanted people to do, but they also used the lure and temptation of the carnal, you know, utopian idea of like free love and you know, uh, food. And 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 I think that's what, as far as like writing goes, I think that was like one of the best contrasts here is because we have. 
Flint, who's like this desperado trying to protect the free world, blah, blah, blah. But he also believes in like open relationships because he's in this polyamorous harem support team. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> you know, and like, what you, I don't know if we're going to discuss this later, but like, you know, when the girls are like, we'll, we'll get there when the girls are like brainwashed and he's like trying to like undo their brainwashing, you know, he's like, you're not a sex slave, you know. Oh, but, that's like, next. That's next. Okay. Yeah, we'll get into that. We'll and I, that. Think, I think, I think we've given the politics of this film at least as much as it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, Rodney throws Gila under the bus uh, and she's taken away to be reprogrammed as a pleasure unit to serve Galaxy in a new way because apparently, like, she's just too much of a fuck-up as a, as a uh, head of Section 4. Um and, uh, and then we go into the action resolution phase of the movie. All right, so Flint escapes and rescues Gila. Uh, why? Uh, because of Bond. Uh, that's my only guess. It, it, this is the typical Bond plot where the villain woman who wants to sleep with him, because everybody wants to sleep with Bond, uh, he, he doesn't want to leave her behind because he actually cares for her. Yeah, I'm gonna flag it as minus five points. It just doesn't it doesn't seem to make any sense. Unless you consider that like, I don't know, he knows that since she has been thrown under the bus by Galaxy. Well, she helped him. She's the one that tossed him his lighter. Oh, that's true, that's true, that's true. And and you know, he's on an island, he's got no allies. Except for possibly this one potential ally. Oh, so you all what? of a sudden he needs a team? You mean like a team? <laughs> like, uh, I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, let's see. So she pretends to be converted and reports to duty, leading Flint to a secret area without much explanation. I guess. Right. So he's like, you know, let's go. And she's like, no, wait a second. What we should do is uh, not tip our hand. I will pretend that the uh, reprogramming is taken hold. And I'll take you somewhere where you should probably go. And he doesn't, she doesn't explain like where she's going to take him, but it turns out she's going to take him to where uh, his four uh, lovely lady support harem ladies uh, are being held, and this next part is <laughs> strapping kids. It's gonna get silly here. Um, so I'll give her plus spy, spy points for that. Um, there's a little weird scene where uh, Flint sees a man eat. Okay, so there's a dispenser on the wall that's dispensing canisters of cold cream, the same kind that we saw in the cafe disguised as a bomb, the same kind that they manufacture in the uh, beauty supply manufacturing front that Galaxy was using in Rome. Uh, he sees a man eat a pill, like find a pill in a case of the cold cream that's dispensed from the wall. It seems to make the man happy. Uh, Flint goes in and takes a pill from the next case that's uh, that's sent in. He pretends to swallow it, but instead pockets it no reason for this, or do we get anything from this? This is like 
far, far beyond or before the uh, invention of Biagra, right? It goes back to that totalitarian government thing we were talking about. Like, the idea is we're supposed to understand they're drugging everyone to make them happy. So it's not Let's really... Take, take your happy pill. Yeah, take, you know, this is what, like, uh, what was that book? Uh, uh, the one where, like, the, 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 the young teenagers all have, like, like birth control... Uh, it's like a dystopian future where it's like super totalitarian and everybody has to be happy. It's a famous literature book. Oh, you're talking about Brave New World. Yes, yeah. So this is a very Brave New World type of concept where like, like, here, take your happy pill and get on. Us three scientists are going to take care of everything. You don't have to worry about anything. And just be happy, take your pill, Soma, and have sex. Soma is what it's called in Brave World. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's kind of what I got out of this. It's like, show up to line, take your pill, and go. If you don't take and, your pill, you have a problem. Right, but, but also, he's like, they're proceeding into a series of very weird fantasy sex places. Yeah. And each one, and each one, each one's stranger than the next. Yeah, yeah. The first one's fairly straightforward. It's just a big party room, right? I mean, it's just like a bunch of people. Like uh, you know, it looks like they all took a bunch of ecstasy and they're just rocking out, and they're probably all gonna like have crazy sex orgies with each other. Right. That is as normal as this shit gets. Yeah. From there, uh, he, I think, I think it's in that first room. That he, he finds two of his girls. Yeah, he finds two of his girls in there. He proceeds to the next chamber, which is like a, a Roman-esque. Like, it's, it's supposed to, you know, you're supposed to think like Caligula here. There's like Roman columns. There's guys uh, uh, getting massages and getting grapes fed to them by scantily clad women. Okay, so that's a little weirder. The next one... Even weirder, but also kind of awesome. The next one, they've got a fake drive-in movie theater makeout chamber. Yeah, it's it, 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 he goes through several different fetishy type concepts. And I want to yeah. Here, it's the third of four, and again, like I said, they get progressively creepier. But I gotta admit, this one is. I like this one. <laughs> out of the ones, out of the ones I see, like I don't know, like the whole teenage fantasy of like just making out with, like it's you know, it's young love. It's uh, it's Back to the Future. It's uh, yeah. I don't know. That's that's the one I would be hanging out in. I'm yeah. not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to apologize for that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not- if I bought into the whole thing, and obviously, like I wouldn't be into the whole like you know, like having. Uh, make out sessions with uh, mind brainwashed sex pleasure units that had formerly been independent, you know, uh, uh, women. <laughs> That's yeah. fucking creepy as fuck. But if I was going to get into the creepy, this is my flavor of creepy. But it's the fourth one. Okay, so now he so he finds his third girl. He finds his third girl in the the Roman hedonistic room. He finds his fourth girl in the fake drive-in, and then he goes to the fourth room, which is the weirdest one of fucking all. Yeah. 
It's kind of reminded me of like those old school Alice in Wonderland movies where they tried to make things look trippy. But it's just a bunch of colors and sounds where they're like brainwashing people. And especially no, 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 no. You, you're, oh, you're forgetting the scene. In fact, it might have been so fucking weird that it didn't even register on you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Possibly. Yeah. So we first we had the the dance party. Okay. Right. Cool. And then we had the Roman hedonism kind of feel. Okay, weirder, weirder. Then we get to the movie theater, drive in, make out, pretend you're back in high school, getting your jollies off for the first time or something. I get it. I mean, I I get it. Fetishistically, I can respond to that. The fourth room is an ice cave. It's an ice cave with, like, you can see some spear fishing equipment set uh, up against the wall and like some like some furs like this is supposed to be like what what fucking fantasy is this is this the fantasy where like you were i don't know heavily injured in an ice fishing accident and some eskimo chick like nurses you back to life and then you have sex <laughs> with her that's the best i can come up with it's, i don't even remember this was this fucking weird <laughs> You know what? Let's let's pause and make you watch it. Come here, come okay. here. I can't give you volume because it'll it'll interfere with the call. But yeah. Okay. Oh, pill. Okay. Uh. Okay. <laughs> Dance party. Right. All right. Cool. <laughs> Drive-in movie theater. Yeah. Even weirder. Yeah. And then, in my opinion, like. You just drive it off the cliff with this one. Like, what the hell? I don't even remember this. It's because it's so weird. It didn't even fucking, like, occur to you. What the fuck? Did we get to see what it is? No! It's, it's just, that's where he finds Gila. Just, like, just to let you know that they hit all of the... That's, that's... Okay, so I just showed it to Dave. And Dave, like, you agree, right? Like, it just... It's so, it's so weird. It just, it just slips through your fingers like the first time you see it you don't even notice this this weird progression of like uh fetish fantasy from fairly normal to fucking what yeah like i maybe this maybe this might be like that uh that peyton place type of reference there might have been like some movie that ended, that involved a romance in like some ice cave somewhere with I don't know, but I, I have I no thinking, idea what that was. I kept thinking of, like, the Star Trek episode where, like, Spock gets isolated from uh, the rest of the crew and he goes through the, um, the Ponfar or whatever. Uh-huh. Like, and, and he's, like, you know, super far away from any Vulcan chick that he can have sex with. And so he starts going, like, crazy. And I think that happens in an ice cave. And I think there's a lady that, like, nurses him to health or something. That's all I could think of. Uh. Moving on! Yeah, moving on. Yeah, moving on. Flint signals the fleet. Now that he's got his girls together, uh, the the thing that was stopping him from telling the fleet to destroy the island, that's, like, solved. He's got his ladies. And he's yeah. got Gila. Yeah, I, I don't know, but we still didn't get through the brainwash. Did we get to talk about the brainwashing? Yeah, I really we wanted to talk about went past it, but it doesn't really have anything to do with spy stuff. I really want to talk about it. So, audience, we're going to rewind a little bit. Dave's got something to say. All right. So, like, 
when he spots like a couple of his girls, they're in this weird brainwashing, I guess, room where, like I was saying, it reminded me of those old Alice in Wonderland movies or like those old movies where they were trying to make things look trippy. Oh yeah, it gets it gets really trippy in here. Yeah, and, and it's just like lights and sounds, and then there's like, like these repeats of statements, like you know, that are like being fed into like these people's heads or whatever. So, and this goes back to my idea, my, my, I guess my feeling that we're looking at like a totalitarian future here or whatever. And his girls are being like programmed and how he deprograms one of his harem girls is you're not a sex slave or you're not a sex toy, I think is what he said. That, that's how he deprogrammed them. That's exactly what they are. Like literally these girls are just like out there as his harem. And like when you like we talked about this at the beginning of the movie, he has to go and like approach each one individually, give him a kiss and tell him something sweet or whatever. And like they're supposed to be happy about it. You know, it's like it's it, not it, a good it's not a good look for the sexual revolution in hindsight. No. Yeah. But at the time at the time I think they're they're all supposed to be in a in a wonderfully like uh, loving uh, uh, relationship, a poly polygamous relationship. That's, that's a loving, not not polyamorous. No, polygamous, polygamous. Polygamous. I, polyamorous is something else. This oh, okay. is polygamy. But uh, at the time, with audiences, we're supposed to see it as uh, something that they are. It's a functioning polygamous relationship in which all the partners are getting what they want out of it. Yes. In retrospect, it's an incredibly bad look, but at the time, that's what people were thinking. Yeah, and, and like the, I guess the idea from this story that we're looking at is instead of people being forced to do what they're told, and you know, back to the Brave New World, you know, type of or like there's that other book, The Giver, where it's like you have like this this kind of like totalitarian overstay, like over overwhelming making decisions for you his way of deprogramming his girls from this brainwashing is like you're not a sex toy you're not a sex slave or what like it was just so silly but i i do think this has to do a lot with spycraft you know because like you know it's not like there's a there's a massively unintended double standard going on right and and there's this concept of this brainwashing where people are programmed you know in various different ways, and now you have to go through te- uh, deprogramming and stuff like that. It, so, yeah, I, I just wanted to talk about that real quick. Yeah, I sure. Think- and I'll, I'll, I, you know, I feel like it's a good time for me to put this out there. Like, one thing I, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not a, a super serious student of like uh, gender issues and and relations, but you know, I feel like I I do have some insights into the sexual revolution that that I feel could be shared like one thing I find really interesting is the fact that Hugh Hefner the the publisher of Playboy magazine when public sentiment turned against his magazine and and started to regard it as 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 a instrument of sexism and an instrument of uh the uh suppression of of the image of women in our society, he was honestly surprised. He was honestly blindsided by that because from his perspective, he had felt like his magazine was elevating and liberating women. Now, I'm not 
defending Hugh Hefner as being on the right side of history, but I have some, I think it's really interesting to think of him and his work from his perspective and to realize that like, yeah, he was wrong, but he didn't, he wasn't, I don't know, crass or evil. He thought he was doing good. Like these kind of, these kind of uh, representations of women uh, being, a, I mean, that's what I always think. And it's so funny too. I find it super funny in like 1960s science fiction, uh, which is like, it's a laugh riot in my opinion. And you see this, this over and over again, you see this idea of like, oh, we used to be a repressed society where women were sex objects, but we didn't admit it and we wouldn't allow them to express their sexuality. Well, now... In the new swing in sixties, everything's fixed, and all the women can be sluts now. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> everything's fixed as long as you choose to be one, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I honestly think it's you know it's weird, but I honestly think in the middle of it, people really thought they had solved <laughs> the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh. I'm not going to say anything about Hugh Hefner. Let's just say this movie does not pass the Bechdel test. No. No, it does not. Not not at all. All right. Back to the plot. We're almost there. We're almost done here. Uh, the doctors, uh, let's see, the doctors, uh, I don't know, the, the president begins announcing capitulation on a worldwide channel. He's saying, like, we're giving up. We're, we're going to let the scientists... Uh, rule the world. And by the way, I should have brought this up in our previous conversation. I'll just divert really quickly. Again, my whole, like, uh, this movie has an anti-liberal slant. Uh, I checked the president at the time in 1966. That is Lyndon B. Johnson, famous Democrat, author of the Great Society Reforms, which had just been instituted in 1964 and 1965. And that's another pin, in my opinion, that, that says to me, this this movie is a little bit of a thumb in the eye of the libs. Oh, I see. We talked enough about that before. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Flint says, like, no, don't blow up the island yet. Don't capitulate yet. We can still do this. Uh, he goes into action sabotage mode. There's no, there's no spy stuff left in this movie. It's just a bunch of uh, uh, punching and smashing machines and and destroying all the mad scientist stuff, and he gets all the people safely off the island before it blows up. And that's the movie. Well, and, and, and yeah, and then Gila, of course, joins the harem. Yes. Happy and, she, and she does, and we know this for sure, even though it's heavily implied here, uh, we get confirmation of that in the second movie, when he's called out of retirement again for a mission, he's only living with three women. Oh. Oh. But he explains this by saying, you know, five was just too many. So he kicked out two? <laughs> Four was okay, but he wanted to hang, hang on wonder, to Gila? I wonder if Gila made the cut. Yeah. <sighs> All right, so David, do you think uh, we're ready to come in from the cold now? Absolutely, let's do it. Agents, please report for debriefing on this operation. The director will see you now. Uh, so final impressions of the movie. Uh, 
I did not really enjoy this movie other than, you know... The let me, let me break in real quick. Let me break in real quick. I think five times while we were watching it together, you said, what is this movie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the whole time, it was, it was ridiculous. I mean, I enjoyed it, like, for MSTK3... MST3K type of reason, but uh, overall, it was, I don't know, it, it, it made me feel kind of, I don't know, I had this, like, super Illuminati feeling to it, and I don't, I don't know what it is, I can't really put my finger on it, but some, something was weird off of it, uh, but, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm probably going to give it, like, a, a two, I, I I had some moments that I enjoyed, and some moments, but most of, the, most of it, I was, I was like, eh, whatever. Hey, what do you think about it? Uh, let's see. Well, okay. So this is two episodes now, and we 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 put them together for a reason. Bond and Flint. We have Bond the standard and Flint the parody of the standard. Even though, like you know, you could really say Bond itself is like, you know, especially sixties Bond. It's it's already a parody of itself. So how do you really need this? You yeah. know. <laughs> And, like, some, some people have said, like, you know, like, knowing that the Derek Flint movies exist, did you really need Austin Powers? You know, mm-hmm. is is any of it necessary? It's all kind of, like, uh, yeah, it's all kind of part of a piece. The sexism in this movie, I found, don't at me, funner than the sexism in the James Bond movie. Because <laughs> at least here, it's it's over the top, it's played for laughs, and I actually feel like, I don't know, I feel like uh, Derek Flint's four ladies are kind of cool, and I, I don't know, they feel like, they feel more empowered to me than like the dumb blonde Russian agent in the, in the Bond uh, Russia with Love that we just did, who just seems like, to be a person without any agency whatsoever. And these ladies don't seem to have a whole bunch of, I don't know, behind the scenes, I feel like maybe they really do have more agency. I feel better about them. I don't feel good about the, I, I just, Gila falling for Flint the way she does. That's fucking weird and, and creepy and odd. But um, anyways, I'm probably babbling too much about that. Uh, just on a, Versus the Russia with love. I like Derek Flint a lot more than James Bond. He's sillier. He's funner to watch. I could give this one. Am I? Do I want to give it a three? Yeah, I'll go with a solid three. I could watch this again. I agree. I I, I had more fun watching this than I did the Bond film. Uh, but as I've said several times, I'm not a big fan of the Bond. <laughs> All right. Reviewing the Tradecraft such as it is. My number three best trade best tradecraft in this movie was also Dave's number two, which was uh, you know, Triple O eight coming in and uh doing a fake fight with Derek Flint while uh giving him some information. So yeah. that they could exchange some information in a way that uh I mean there's, there's probably better ways you could have done it, but the way they did it was fun and enjoyable and kinda sneaky. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my number three was uh, after getting out of the bathroom, he checked the cream case and discovered it was a bomb and then just pulls out a gun to scare everybody out of the club. That was, so that, yeah, he, that was in Marseille. In Marseille. Yeah, Marseille, yeah. And then 
Uh, what was your number two? Uh, my number two is uh, trapping our, our intrepid Derek Flint in a safe with no ventilation. It seemed like a very safe and sensible way to try to kill this guy who's demonstrated that he's virtually unkillable. Yeah. And then, uh, as Todd said, my number two was the pretend fight with Triple O Eight and Flint to pass right. on. And our number one is a shared one. We like the uh, metabolism trick to fake his death to get to the island that way. Yeah, I think that was cool. Yeah, it's pretty much the coolest thing he does in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, my number three worst tradecraft was the hidden building. It was just, I, I don't. I don't see the feasibility based on, you know, the use of resources and just really the purpose of it. And then, I, yeah, it, I don't know. It was pretty bad. My number three worst was the villains trying to take out Flint before he was even on the case because that yeah. just didn't pay off well for them at yeah. all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, my number two worst, uh, after the building was hidden, they were just loudly talking about the mission in a public place. Like, worst, worst intelligence ever. Like, look at us, we're spies. Number two worst for me is uh, Gila assuming that the bomb would take out Flint. Again, that's back in Marseille. Uh, there's no reason for her to think that it would have killed him. And there's no reason for her to have assumed that it would have killed him without verifying somehow. I mean, it'd just be really easy for her to just watch what happened after she left the cafe. Absolutely. That's uh, your some number I, ones. Yeah, my number one was definitely Flint saying no to the team, uh, and that's mainly because of how real, you know, I know this is a really over-the-top film, uh, but realistically that's probably the worst mistake he made, period. I mean, you know, our story it didn't really affect him, I, well, no, maybe a little bit later it'd be nice to have a team, but I don't know. Yeah, that's a, this is a big no-no. There's just no reason to not, you know. Yeah. And uh, my number one worst, which is just it's just such a no-brainer. After the the building has disappeared in Rome, that they're just like, oh, well, I guess we can't figure this case out. When it would have been astonishingly easy. Like, even I could do this. And I have no training or whatsoever. Like, my grandmother could have solved this case. Yeah. Just ask someone, has the cafe really been there for years? Yeah. <laughs> case closed. So, redactions. Number one, no, one to five. One redaction reflects a very realistic spy movie. That would indicate that this movie uh, represents something that uh, actually happened and, and no... No, no agency needed to come in and say, well, yo, you can't, you can't tell them about that. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think we need a whole bunch of discussion between us. Cause I know we nah. both have to agree on this. I think, I think a four and a half is good. Cause we're saving five for Austin Powers. I could, I could just hit this with a five. Oh, you want, all right, we're going to go for, a, I'll take a five on this. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's hit it. It doesn't, it's not worth the 4.5. <laughs> all right. Well, that was that was a show. All right, our man Flint. Yeah. Uh, David, I want to stay very, very far. I know there's so much stuff we have to do in the '60s, but let's take a serious break from the '60s for a bit. I'm just '60s stout. We need to. We're doing Miss Slow next. Like. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to do it. Yeah. All right.
And that's the end of our show. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Twitter at spies underscore like us. Visit us on our website at www.spieslikeus.net. You know, find out about upcoming episodes. Also, what will really help us out is if you give us a review on wherever you found our podcast, either on iTunes or your Android app or YouTube or wherever you listen to us. Uh, even if you didn't like the show, just give us a review. It'll help us give us feedback so we can make the show better. And it can also help other people who haven't found the show yet find out about us. Hey, Moira, initiate Protocol 9. Protocol 9 initiated. This podcast will self-destruct in 20 seconds. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.